Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. On Thursday, the Consumer Price Index for the last month was released, and the headlines were grim. Prices jumped 5% in May from year earlier, stoking debate in Washington. That's from the New York Times. The subhead spelled out the doom even more clearly. The CPI showed the strongest year-over-year reading since 2008, and a core index popped the most since 1992. Much lower in the story, we learned that one reason the year-over-year increase was so high is that it was a comparison, of course, to last May. And last May came at the depth of the early days of the pandemic, when prices had fallen to record lows. We also learned that economists have expected a price bump as the economy reopens and people travel and spend money they've saved the past year. All of this is happening while rickety supply chains are still themselves recovering from the panic. And because we've allowed so many of our industries to become so concentrated, supply chain problems are felt more acutely than they used to be. The thing that might actually be more dangerous than inflation, however, could be the reports of inflation and the response from Washington that those reports produce. The knee-jerk move in D.C. whenever we hear the word inflation is to hurry up and throw people out of work by raising interest rates. This is Deconstructed. I'm Ryan Grimm, and later in the show, we'll be joined by economics professor Jamie Galbraith to explain how wildly wrong that is. But first, a few words about the loudest economist who is being so loudly wrong. I'm speaking, of course, of none other than Larry Summers. The Washington Post recently reported that President Biden had a private phone call with this exceedingly influential economist and gave him a chance to air his criticisms of the administration's economic policies. So does this mean Biden is actually listening to Larry Summers or to economists like him? If Biden really wants to know what happens when you let Larry Summers guide your economic policymaking, he could just call his old boss, Barack Obama. Summers, for those of you who don't remember, was Obama's top economist at the height of the financial crisis. Before that, he was a Treasury Secretary for Bill Clinton, whom he helped push through the very Wall Street deregulation that ended up fueling the 2008 crash. The idea that Larry Summers thinks anybody should be listening to him at this point doesn't speak well of his judgment. The good news is that no, it doesn't seem like either Biden or his economic team are actually listening to Summers. More on that in a moment. But first, let's talk about Larry Summers' economic policy beef with the Biden White House. Basically, it boils down to inflation. Summers thinks that Biden is doing too much to juice the economy and that all this government spending is going to drive up inflation. He's called inflation, quote, the primary risk that we face. Now, it's true that real inflation that gets too high can be a big problem for regular people. That is, if wages don't keep up with it or you're on a fixed income. But when people like Summers talk about inflation and an overheating economy, it's not just rising grocery prices they're talking about. What this is all really about is a power struggle in the workplace. In the 1970s, according to mainstream economists, workers had gotten too powerful. Their unions were driving up wages not just for them, but at non-unionized companies too. 
The solution was to destroy the unions and fire the workers. And so Jimmy Carter brought in Paul Volcker to chair the Fed and do just that. He jacked up interest rates to the sky, bringing about a vicious recession. By the early 80s, inflation was coming down. Since so many people had been fired, they had less money to spend, and as a consequence, there were way more job seekers than there were jobs. Wages went down, and it became much harder to form a union. Those unions that survived had to accept lower wages. In 1981, Ronald Reagan fired the air traffic controllers when they went on strike. It was a signal to big business that they could do whatever they wanted to unions and the government wouldn't stop them. It might even help them. Wealth and power flowed upward. Inequality skyrocketed. And wages were kept low to guarantee that things would stay that way. Anytime real wages showed even a hint that they were thinking of going up, the Fed would jack up interest rates and slow down the economy. It got so bad that the market started getting spooked if there was even a rumor of a good jobs report. If it looked like workers were doing a tiny bit better, investors thought, well, now the Fed's going to raise interest rates, so we better sell everything now and start to slow down hiring. That's why the words of the Fed chairman or the president actually matter if they're talking about inflation. In most cases, when politicians talk, it's just talk. But if they're talking about wages and inflation, what they say filters immediately into the real world and into people's paychecks. The fight over wages and inflation is at the very heart of the class war. And what's interesting is that even to those who say race and gender equity dynamics should be prioritized ahead of a class analysis, wage pressure is still the most important game in town. Think about it this way. If there are 10 unemployed workers for every job opening, bosses can pay the bare minimum and treat workers like garbage. In a country shot through with racism and sexism, that means racism and sexism will flourish in the workplace. But if there's only one worker for every job opening, companies have to treat that worker a lot better. If a boss messes with the schedule or harasses you or treats you as less than because of who you are or who you love, you can just quit and go find another job. That's power. You can't do that if it's harder to find another job. And your boss knows that, so he's less likely to treat you that way. The name of that situation is full employment. And full employment is the biggest fear of the ruling class. When an economist on CNBC or Fox Business warns about inflation, what they're really worried about is workers getting too much power. Now, back to Biden and Summers. Let's pretend for a moment that Summers' grievance is sincere and grounded in real economic data instead of just his bitterness that he's no longer an insider. The fact that Biden made that call to Summers at all is worrying. The official line on the call, however, is more encouraging. The Post quoted a White House official who said that Biden is seeking, quote, a wide spectrum of views and that the Summers call was, quote, brief and informal. The same official said that the call took place before the president's speech on the economy in Cleveland. They explained that Biden, quote, has spoken to a number of voices outside of the administration, including many with whom he has disagreements, and added that he has also been speaking with Bernie Sanders. As someone who's covered White Houses over the years, let me parse that for you. When a mainstream news outlet refers to a, quote, White House official like that, and the quote is a bit robotic, it means it came from a spokesperson, which means it was approved up high and represents the White House's public position. And Larry Summers knows that. But the most important detail there was that Biden's brief call with Summers happened right before Biden went on stage to give a major address on the economy. Let's take a listen to the speech he gave right after talking to Summers. I, I'm a capitalist, but here's the deal. From 1948 after the war to 1979, productivity in America grew by 100 percent. 
We made more things. Productivity. You know what the workers' pay grew? I won 100 percent. Since 1979, all that changed. Productivity has grown four times faster than pay has grown. The basic bargain in this country has been broken. Okay, that's a fairly standard progressive understanding of the 20th century. So far, so good. Here's where he takes it next. Along the way, we started seeing the stock market and corporate profits and executive pay as the sole measure of our economic success. Let me tell you something. My sole measure of economic success is how working families are doing, whether they have jobs that deliver dignity. All right, great. Working families, jobs that deliver dignity, all fine stuff. But we're still in the realm of standard Democratic campaign talking points. But he goes on. That means we have to focus on wages like we used to. Okay, now we're talking. That means we have to focus on wages like we used to. We have to focus on wages like we used to. And it gets even stronger. When it comes to the economy we're building, rising wages aren't a bug, they're a feature. To repeat, rising wages aren't a bug, they're a feature. That is exactly right. Too many conventional economists think of rising wages as something bad, something that the government needs to fix. Rising wages are a feature, not a bug. They're what we want. This right here is the speech he gave just moments after that call with Larry Summers. Back to Biden one more time. Why does he argue that rising wages are a feature and not a bug? We want to get, we want to get something economists call full employment. Instead of workers competing with each other for jobs that are scarce, we want employers to compete with each other to attract work. We want the, the companies to compete to attract workers. That kind of competition in the market doesn't just give workers more ability to earn a higher wage. It gives them the power to demand and be treated with dignity and respect in the workplace. And it helps ensure that in America, when you walk into work, you don't have to check your right to be treated with respect at the door. Full employment also means more options and opportunities for workers, including black, Hispanic workers, Amer- a- Asian-American workers, women, who've been left behind in previous economic recoveries. Again, that's exactly right. And that's also the perfect intersection of the class war and the increasingly toxic debates about wokeness. This might sound too obvious, but the way to actually help marginalized communities is to make them less marginalized, to get them off the margins. The way to do that is to give them power that they can then use however they see fit in pursuit of their own dignity and their own vision of a good life. Full employment gives them that power. You think that factory owner during World War II hired Rosie the Riveter because he got woke on gender equity? Racist factory owners during the war didn't start hiring black workers because they suddenly saw the light on civil rights. It was because they had no choice. Black workers have historically been the last to be hired and the first to be fired, which means that the closer the economy is to full employment, the better they are doing, the more power they have. Now, economic power alone is no guarantee of civil rights or human rights, but it creates a political base of power you can use to fight for those rights. The greatest advance of civil rights in the 60s came after two decades of rising wages. That's not a coincidence. The white backlash made its most serious inroads in the 80s and 90s when wages were flat and declining for communities that were becoming ever more marginalized. That's not a coincidence either. With prices rising, we're going to be seeing an awful lot of people arguing that we need to raise interest rates to tame it. 
What they won't say is that they want to do it so that workers lose power and can no longer command a decent wage or dignity on the job. To stop that from happening, it's important to understand what's really going on. For that, I'm happy to welcome back Jamie Galbraith, an economist at the University of Texas. Professor Galbraith, welcome to Deconstructed. Thank you very much. Good to be with you. Sure thing. And and first first of all, there's been some news in the Galbraith family. Um, <laughs> you, you're you're no longer perhaps the uh, the most celebrated Galbraith in Texas. Tell tell us a little bit about what's going on with Emma. Yes. Yeah, yeah. so, well, my daughter Emma is the star of a of a film, In Between Girl, uh, which is making the rounds of festivals. It was uh, given the Audience Award at South by Southwest and the Jury Award at the uh, CAAM, the Asian American uh, Festival in San Francisco, a couple of weeks ago. It's been very, very well reviewed, and uh, needless to say, the, the the family has a new star. Well, congratulations, Papa. Yeah, so on, this, on the subject of today's Deconstructed, there's a conventional understanding of why the U.S. saw inflation in the 1970s and 80s, and you've consistently argued against that to a degree. What, 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 what do you think really happened? How do you explain inflation during that period? Oh, well, prices started rising in the late 1960s, and that's generally associated with mm-hmm. a very strong economy in the Vietnam War. Uh, but in the 70s, the international system was that it existed kind of broke apart. There you go. It was a stabilizing exchange rate regime called the Bretton Woods system. It was uh, basically dismantled in 1971, uh, and that was followed by a, a fall in the value of the dollar, and then the big rise in oil prices, which happened in 1973 and again in 1979. Uh, and those things, basically, the commodity price uh, increases fed through into the wage system in the United States, which had a very strong component of cost of living adjustments in union settlements. Uh, and that generated a decade where prices were rising reasonably rapidly through the, through the whole system. But that whole structure of the economy is very, very different then from what it is today. So the, the story of what happened then is not really one that, that one can learn a great deal about the present situation. from. And, and yet it seems like people are trying to kind of learn from that system and, and, and apply it to today. There are, pe- there are people who say, well, we're just going back to the 1970s. Well, I think that's very, very unlikely. The structure of the U.S. economy is much more internationalized. The pass-through mechanisms that existed in the 70s are basically non-existent at this point. Uh, and so while we will get and are getting, you can see that some increases in prices that are occurring as we transition out of the pandemic and uh, there's a shift in some structures to the economy. The mechanisms are different. They're much less likely to be a, a, it's much less likely to be a lasting phenomenon. Right. So, so in March, you wrote an essay arguing that inflation fears were overblown for one reason, and that was China. And can you walk us through why that is and, and, and how our relationship with China and with global, global commerce has changed the this, this structure such that we think about inflation differently now? Well, there, there are, it's actually a couple of things uh, that the China situation is, is very much in the forefront right now. But from the middle 1980s onward, uh, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, we entered a period when commodity prices were really very stable. Uh, and they were, um, uh, they remained that way. And they, those prices uh, set on global markets, not very strongly influenced by what happens inside the United States. Uh, China came along a little later 
providing a very large share of the manufactured consumer goods at very stable prices. And so well, those two things you basically have the, the price level affecting most American consumers, more or less internationalized phenomenon. It's not to say it can't be disrupted uh, by the by what's going on basically right now, which is the the transition out of the, out of the pandemic. But uh, those that situation uh, is uh, you know is a feature of, of life uh, that we live with right now. Now I, I did write that if that the one one risk you could run is if you if you disrupted those international mm-hmm. patterns of trade. Well, yes, you're going to get price uh, consequences of that in the United States, and that was the point of the essay a few weeks ago. And so one one virtue for kind of Wall Street and the CEO class of believing in the idea that labor power in the in the 70s was the was the real problem. That was the, that was the thing that that kind of solely drove inflation, and that and that crushing labor unions was. Uh, regrettable but necessary response to that. If they can convince themselves that they're in a similar situation and wages are rising, you know, too quickly now, then that would seem to justify another crackdown. Uh, there, are, there aren't as many unions to crack down on, but there are workers that could be punished. Are, are you seeing some of that develop? We're certainly seeing that story being told that people don't want to work because they have savings piled up or because they're, they're on unemployment insurance and businesses can't find workers at the wages they're, they're willing to pay. But the reality is, of course, businesses have been paying miserable wages to workers, American workers, for years. Uh, and they've been, uh, the worst of them have been uh, apparently quite happy with being able to get away with that. Uh, and it's a very good thing right now uh, that if they have to, uh, to, to raise wages, to bring people back into the labor force. Thing. Great, let them raise, uh, raise wages. This is not a problem that you can describe as an ongoing problem of inflation, which is uh, related to the value of the, the currency and the stability of the economy. It's a simply you know, a market adjustment that needs to be made uh, in order to, uh, and that should be made and to the benefit of the, work, of the working population. I mean, you have to ask yourself, if you're going to go with that argument, would you be in favor of the Fed intervening and raising interest rates if Congress raised the minimum wage. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would be an absurd conclusion. And you, you do these, these things happen and they, they, they involve a change in the in the in the relationship in the in the society. And if you're if you're a conservative economist, you say, well that's the market. Get used to it. And so in the 70s and 80s you argued for a different response to inflation at the time. What sure. what policies did you argue for then and are any of those applicable today if we do see inflation? Well, there was a very substantial tradition going back well before that to the 30s and 40s that the way you manage these pressures was by having a negotiated arrangement, a social contract between labor, business, and government, essentially. Uh, and that was, uh, that was the policy of the, of the 1960s. That was Kennedy's policy. That was Johnson's policy. The strategy of using unemployment to bash labor into submission was basically started in the 1970s and then really applied with ferocity uh, in the 1980s. That was a, that's a very destructive policy. It, it not only... But, you know, damaged, of course, a whole generation of working Americans. The casualty on the side was the, was the entire American industrial base in the upper Midwest, which was, was deeply damaged by the high interest rate policies and the very high dollar policies of the, of the early 1980s, destroyed their export markets, gave an enormous leg up to the competition, which at the time was the Germans and the Japanese, that opened the door for enormous amount of outsourcing. So uh, this is a, a, it's not a set of mistakes we should be making again. 
quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. So you've advised congressional Democrats in, in the past, and hypothetically, let's say that they, they come to you again and they say, Professor Galbraith, I'm getting killed back in my district over lumber prices, and I'm being told that... Uh, milk is too expensive. You've seen some Republicans point to like a four cent increase in, in burrito prices at Chipotle to say that uh, the world is ending. They say maybe the world isn't ending, but this is a political problem for me at, at least. Uh, what what are some policy responses that, that Democrats could implement to target inflation without driving people into unemployment? Okay, so the first first of all, one has to look at what has happened. I was just looking at the inflation numbers that were released this morning, uh, and you know, they recognized that uh, underlying them were basically two elements: an, an increase of about fifty percent uh, in gasoline prices, basic energy prices, over year over year. That's not going to happen again. So one can say, okay, we can clearly see that's a transitory phenomenon. Uh, and then there's an increase in, com- in other commodity prices and in things like used cars and trucks. And I can't do much about the used car market. But with respect to commodity prices, metals and things of that nature, lumber, as you mentioned, uh, one can look to see whether there's an element of financial speculation going on here. Because there is an incentive in this situation if you're uh, invested in the Goldman Sachs commodity index to to uh, bid up the prices of commodities and keep them off the market for a while, hoping to sell them later at a higher price. That happens in this situation. So I would, first of all, mobilize the regulatory authorities to go after the financiers. Now, that is, by the way, one approach that is being taken in China, where they're very conscious of the danger of price increases from social stability. So if you're looking at those particular commodities, yeah, there are things you can do. And you can also ask, what can we do to increase the available supply so that the price increases are limited? Those are things that you can, that you can in fact, address without, without going after the, the workers who are, after all, they're the consumers mm-hmm. here and they're the ones affected by the price increases, but they're not driving. What would a, a, a regulatory targeting of, of speculators look like? Who, who, would, who would lead that? Well, you have regulatory authorities mm-hmm. that uh, are responsible for that. You look at the, you look at the Fed, you look at the SEC, you look at the, uh, and all the regulators of the various institutions. The Commodity Futures Trading Commission, I think, probably have jurisdiction in this area. So I would like to know what they have to say about this. What's going on? I'm not saying that I, I have the specific right, evidence sure. on these hours, but, but, but it's these worth things, looking at, right? These things do happen. You had you had it very clearly happen in the run up to the to the crash in two thousand eight, when the oil price was driven up to one hundred and forty eight dollars a barrel. There's a strong speculative element behind that. 
Would would they need new legislation, or do they have an ability to curb speculation on on their own already? I think they have that authority. Yes, sure. I mean, they can. There are things like raising margin requirements and so on that uh, where they can intervene directly. If they need new authorities, they can ask for. And so back back to the the question of of smashing labor and and driving workers into unemployment. Can you walk people through what the Phillips curve is? You know what its what its influence has been on American and global economic policymaking? Well, Phillips curve was, uh, let's call it an alleged statistical relationship that was originally based upon actually the United Kingdom in the late 19th century, early 20th century. And then on the United States, it was recalculated, actually just charted by hand, essentially, for the U.S. in the post-war period by two very important 20th century economists, Paul Samuelson and Robert Sol, who published an article on it in 1916. So this is the Phillips curve. And it became part of a kind of the folklore of economics of this period. And the idea was that if you, as you push the unemployment rate down, which was considered, by the way, to be a good thing, you would have to pay a price in terms of a rising rate of inflation, basically based upon a historical alleged empirical relationship. There was never any very strong reasoning behind this. There were a number of economists who, I, in the tradition I grew up in, who never accepted it as a serious argument. But it became very much embedded in the way in which a particular generation of economists uh, calculated their forecasts for the economy. And it was also very controversial on the right that basically said, no, you, if you push the unemployment rate down, you get runaway inflation. So it's not a stable process. And that became the dominant view for a while. But the reality, which has emerged in the last 40 years and was always the case in almost all other countries, was that as the unemployment rate goes down, nothing much happens to prices until some moment when uh, some other event happens, like the price shocks from the uh, from the oil uh, uh, cartel or uh, you know, events of that nature. And at that point, what happens is what depends upon the institutional structure of the society. Uh, in the U.S., those effects tended to be drawn out over a period of years. Uh, this was never the case, for example, in Japan. I don't think it was ever the case in Germany. And the result was that it, when a price shock happened, it tended to just pass through in a year. And then nobody said there was going to be an ongoing inflation. And I think we are now much closer to that historical, the situation that was historically relevant everywhere else where we may see some price increases, we are seeing some price increases. But first of all, they may simply go away. And second of all, they may, I mean, there's, you may, the price go up and they may come down again, or they may simply stop rising. And in neither case do you expect to see a prolonged period in which you have a generalized inflation and an expectation that it's going to continue. This kind of worry, which is a, a, a almost a fetish of a certain part of the economics profession, uh, is really based upon a set of historical circumstances, dubious enough at the time, but certainly not, I think, applicable to the situation we're in now. How, how widely held is this fetish in today's kind of mainstream um, economics? It, it feels like it is still the conventional wisdom among the media but is that that's hard to judge. You have some influential economists, and Larry Summers is a leading example here, who make a big deal out of it. Uh, and it's hard to, and the media, as you say, pick them up. So there's an echo chamber there. I think the number of economists who express this view and hold it, and who have an independent opinion on it, uh, that based on their own, you know, serious thinking, is actually pretty small. But they're influential. How has Larry Summers continued 
to believe this. You know, he he's a he's a smart cat. He can see data. Like, wh- why has he held on to this idea long past its expiration date? Oh, oh well, you'd have to ask him that. No, it, the, of course, the, the, if you pick up textbooks, the Phillips curve is going to be found in the pages of textbooks. So, uh, there's someone who's you know takes the tech takes the textbook seriously. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They say, well, gee, but the fact is economics textbooks are just repositories of a history of of old ideas. Uh, And uh, it's really unfortunate because new generations of students have kind of inculcated various ideas, which have, you know, I I, I tended to dissent from them to begin with, but they certainly haven't held up well. Why Larry Summers is aligned with Adam uh, is a question for, for Larry Summers. And back to what you mentioned earlier, and, and you hinted at this in your essay, that a real driver of inflation could be hostilities between the United States and China. When, and, w- and when we talk about ho- hostilities, what, what level? Are we talking shooting war or simple trade disputes? Because the, both the Trump and the Biden administration are, and I think rightly so, like, you know, trying to assert some U.S. authority here in this trade relationship. What are they flirting with? Well, they, uh, I, I don't think there's going to be a shooting war with China. There's no basis for one. Uh, there's no place to, for one to mm-hmm. break out, really, short of, short of some really dramatic developments with respect to, let's say, Taiwan. And it's not even clear we would be involved in that. But what we're talking about here is the dis- disruption of the of the supply chains, uh, and there has been some disruption of the supply chains. There was some uh, in the initial phases of the pandemic, and there could be some as a result of a concerted policy on the part of the United States to break off uh, dependence on Chinese suppliers for all kinds of things, which we which are components of the things that we use here. And those things are going to you know, do that. You're going to drive up prices. Uh, some of that is. You know, it may be strategically correct. You may want to say, look, we, for certain sets of goods, we have a, uh, the, and the pandemic taught us this with respect to basic health supplies. You know, you want to have a reserve capacity in your own country so that you're not going to be caught out if there's, uh, you know, a real shift of global demand to some other part of the world. So, but then you just say, okay, we're going to pay a higher price, you know, then turn around and say that when you look at that price, as it turns up in the consumer price index, that that's that's something we're going to call inflation and the Fed should react to it by raising interest rates and throwing people out of work. (laughs) That makes no Mm -hmm. sense at all. Uh, You know, if you have a strategic reason to put up with higher prices for something, uh, then you, you know, that, that that's a. Uh, a reason you do that for that purpose, and you and you live with it. And and finally, what do you what do you make of the huge run up in in housing prices, and what do you think the effect on the broader economy is is going to be of that development? Well, what we're seeing is a huge run up in land prices. Uh, hmm. There's some increase in construction prices as well, but it's uh, the, the the price of housing is by and large the price of land in particular places. And what's driving that uh, are are you know there, there are a number of things. One is the people are relocating; they've changed their patterns of what they uh, what they where they want to live. That's partly a result of the pandemic. And you know, you can, if you're if probably if you're moving into the to the core of the city, you, know, you may find that the prices are not all that high at the moment. So there's there's that, and then there's the demand for people are are, are, re, are are refinishing expanding the houses that they live in and they're building new houses and so you're, you've got a you've got a, some pinch on the 
on the construction supplies. That is driven in part, of course, by the fact that people came through the pandemic with quite a lot of savings, which was thanks to the very effective policies that were put in place both early last year and again early this year, which are there were there for the purpose of giving people uh, the financial means to uh, to get through this. I would regard that as a as a a transitory phenomenon by and large, uh, because it's a stock of savings. And there are two ways it will be reduced over time. One is possibly slowly, as people are cautious about increasing their spending, uh, in which case it will have very little effect. Or it could be spent down, as Larry Summers thinks it will be very quickly, as people rush out to do things that they can't do, couldn't do for a year, and, and compete to, to, to buy new houses and so forth. But if it's drawn down quickly, it'll be gone that much sooner. I mean, there's only a certain amount of water in the bathtub. And if you drain it slowly, it'll be there for a while. If you drain it quickly, it'll be gone. Uh, so in either case, does it make sense to think of this as the source of, a, of something that we would describe as an inflation problem? An inflation problem is one which is likely to be sustained over a substantial period of time. That's when you start worrying about it. You start worrying about people really having their economic lives disordered by not being able to, you know, effectively predict and manage the their incomes and their expenditures. But that's not what we're looking at here. To panic about them and to say the problem is that we need to we need to tighten up the economy and leave people who've been out of work for a year out of work even longer. It's bizarre. <laughs> this just doesn't make any sense at all. <laughs> and when, when you last joined us on the program, you out, you outlined a, a number of kind of tr- transformational things that you thought Democrats ought, ought to do to transition the economy into a, into a healthier place post post pandemic. Um, have you changed your thinking on any of that? And have you, have you seen any of that begin to happen? Uh, well, let's say there were, um, there were a number of, of issues. The one that comes to mind immediately is the, is the problem of household debts. And I think that problem is still lurking out there. It's obviously, you know, it helps if people have enough money to pay rent and to keep up with their mortgages, but they're still, according to reports, I've seen quite a lot under forbearance, uh, and quite a lot of backlogs built up. And you have a, you have an issue here, which is a real issue of conflicting equities because a lot of the people who are, uh, to, who are owed rent uh, are small landlords who have taxes and mortgages to pay. And so there is a this issue strikes me as something that really needs attention and uh, we need to understand its full dimensions and have have some way of of dealing with it um, not to have a a lot more people basically tossed out uh, evicted or foreclosed on uh, when these moratoria come to an end. That's one area where I think we still have a uh, have a substantial, set of issues. The other two, one of them had to do with the nature of the, of the markets for, for the most advanced sectors. And I still think we have we have not faced the need to transform things in this. You look at what's happening well, with the infrastructure bill, I don't think we're going to see a lot of major transformation. But the fact is, as a society, we're spending far too much, for example, in the military, uh, and a lot on certain kinds of advanced industries, which are uh, where resources are, where the markets just are not that promising. What we need to do, is, what we need to do, is address the, you know, the climate question and, uh, and uh, the urban reconstruction question in a major way. And I don't see that happening. Uh, and it's obviously very difficult to make it happen when you have um, the kind of divisions in the Congress 
um, that we're, we're seeing now. Uh, one example of what we're seeing now is the bill that's just went through the Senate on uh, information technology and advanced industries and so forth. Uh, it was set up as a you know, competition with China, but who are the beneficiaries there? Well, one of them is the military sector. Another one is the automotive sector, which needs chips in order to for for all the you know the dashboards and uh, GPS systems and electronic controls that they have in cars nowadays. Uh, and that's all very well and good, except that's not really a transformational set of investments. It's, it's, it's the right. same old car industry, which is the same old fossil fuel industry that we had before. Uh, so uh, there are issues here that we need to deal with. Uh, and I think the third issue had to do with employment. Uh, and I still believe that there is a... Uh, um, you know, that if we had a job guarantee program uh, that uh, uh, people could have a secure base of, of employment offers, uh, then we would be through this problem. Uh, the problems we're facing much more quickly. There are a lot of people. Yes, the people are coming back to work now, but there are a lot of people who have not. And the employment to population ratio is still, I think, four percentage points, about five million people lower than it was even a year ago and a good deal lower than it was 15 years ago. Well, Professor Galbraith, thanks so much for joining us again here on Deconstructed. Always a pleasure. That was Jamie Galbraith. Some of you may remember that Galbraith's brush with European fame came when he and his friend Yanis Varoufakis, the outspoken radical Greek economist, advised the Greek insurgent governing party of Syriza in its showdown with Germany over austerity measures. Varoufakis later wrote a delightful memoir, and in it, he recounts an exchange he had with Larry Summers that helps explain the anger Summers is feeling now. I'll read the passage. Finally, after agreeing our next steps, and before the combined effects of fatigue and alcohol forced us to call it a night, Summers looked at me intensely and asked a question so well rehearsed that I suspected he had used it to test others before me. There are two kinds of politicians, he said, insiders and outsiders. The outsiders prioritize their freedom to speak their version of the truth. The price of their freedom is that they are ignored by the insiders who make the important decisions. The insiders, for their part, follow a sacrosanct rule. Never turn against other insiders and never talk to outsiders about what insiders say or do. Their reward? Access to inside information and a chance, though no guarantee, of influencing powerful people and outcomes. With that, Summers arrived at his question. So, Giannis, he said, which of the two are you? Instinct urged me to respond with a single word. Instead, I used quite a few. By character, I am a natural outsider, I began. But, I hastened to add, I am prepared to strangle my character if it would help strike a new deal for Greece that gets our people out of debt prison. Have no doubt about this, Larry. I shall behave like a natural insider for as long as it takes to get a viable agreement on the table. For Greece, indeed for Europe. But if the insiders I am dealing with prove unwilling to release Greece from its eternal debt bondage, I will not hesitate to turn whistleblower on them, to return to the outside, which is my natural habitat anyway. Fair enough, he said after a thoughtful pause. So now Larry is on the outside, and he knows he can speak his mind, but insiders are free to ignore him. That's got a sting. That was Giannis Varoufakis, and that's our show. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. Laura Flynn is our supervising producer. The show was mixed by Brian Pugh. 
Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is the Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, D.C. Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash give. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please do leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. If you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. See you next week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.